Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Around the Clock in Europe, published in 1912 and written by Charles Fish Howell. This story takes a quick trip around Europe and invites the reader to experience what it's like at different times of the day. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Firstly, a massive thank you to new supporters on Patreon, Bonnie Kind and Bree, aka Barcode. Your support for the podcast on Patreon is extremely appreciated as it allows me to bring out more episodes for you and those who need them. My goal is to keep the podcast free to allow access for everybody, and it's due to the support via Patreon from listeners such as yourself that allows me to keep bringing out those episodes for everybody. To all listeners who contacted me via the website, thank you for your kind words. To iTunes listener Brian Boda from the US, thank you for your lovely review on iTunes. And of course, to all Spotify listeners, thank you for continuing to respond to the Q&A and letting me know what you thought about your episode of choice. I understand that not everyone can support the podcast financially, and that's okay. But an amazing thing to do would be to share it with a friend who also needs a good night's rest. And of course, subscribe, and please leave a review in your podcast player of choice. Even one sentence really helps out. If you would like to say hello to me, you can say that at boytosleep.com. It's always great to hear from listeners, whether it's via the website or whether it's via a review or comment in your podcast player of choice. The most important thing is that you're getting the rest that you need through a good night's sleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. Around the Clock in Europe, a travel sequence by Charles Fish Howell. To Helen Edith Howell, sweet the memory is to me of a land beyond the sea. In explanation, the pages that follow should best account for themselves of course, but for the satisfaction of those who very properly require some general conception of a project before definitely entering upon it.
the author begs to say that he has here sought to visualise to the reader the appearance and the life of these cities at the hours indicated and to preserve as well the distinctive atmosphere of each. He has endeavoured to catch and present faithful impressions of the streets, their kaleidoscopic animation, and the activities and characteristics of the people, to touch the pen pictures with a light overwash of the racial and national peculiarities that distinguish each, and to invest them with what insight, sympathy and enthusiasm he is capable of. It is fitting the scene with the apposite phrase, as Mr. Howells has so aptly described the process and he himself has so wonderfully exemplified it. A formidable undertaking, indeed yes, but there is the dictum of Mr. Browning that the purpose swells the account. These, then, are impressionistic sketches. They are of the moment only, It has been sought, most of all, to give them just that character. They have been written as reflecting the probable observations and emotions of visitors, of normal enthusiasm during these hours and in these environments. Under such conditions, it is well to remember, every active mind has its sudden drifting excursions afield, something in the visible, present surroundings, whimsically invokes the subtle genii of memory and imagination, and one is whisked off in a breath, and without rhyme or reason, to the most ultimate and alluring isles of thought. These swift and scarcely accountable flights are the common experience of all travellers, and the author has felt it to be a part of his task to take proper cognizance of them. Travel is generally conceded to be one of the most informing and diverting of engagements, and to gain in both particulars in proportion to the favourableness of the conditions under which it is prosecuted, It is, therefore, a satisfaction to be in position to afford readers advantages, scarcely obtainable elsewhere. Discarding conventions of time and space, the author undertakes to give them twelve consecutive happy hours in Europe, once around the clock, always endeavouring to secure the most favourable union of hour and place. And though there may be dissent from his judgment concerning the superiority of this combination or that, there can hardly be two opinions as to the perfection of the transportation facilities. The latter eliminate time and space, and convey the reader from city to city, and from point to point with no discomfort or inconvenience whatever, 
and without the loss of so much as a tick of the watch. With foot in the stirrup, it may be added that there has been an earnest desire to entertain those whose circumstances have hitherto kept at home, as also to revive to memory golden recollections for travellers who have already passed along these pleasant ways. What is here offered is just a new portfolio of sketches from nature, the touch of another but reverent hand on the old and well-loved scenes. Surely there can be no better reason for any book than a desire to share with others the happiness experienced by the author. Around the Clock in Europe, Edinburgh, 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Up there on the gutsy heights of Edinburgh, no one ever inquires the time at one o'clock in the afternoon. Precisely at the second, a ball flutters to the top of the Nelson flagstaff on Colton Hill, and a cannon booms from a battery at Castle Rock. And watches are then set by merchants all over town, by shepherds on the shaggy Pentland Hills, and sailors on ships in the lee of Leith. And one o'clock is the very best time Edinburgh could have fixed upon to encourage her people to look up and about and behold her at her finest. It is luncheon hour, and when the sun is kindly, old Reiki is just about as garish and stimulating as it is possible for a town of such dignified traditions and questionable climate ever to become. The air freshens in from blustering Leith, and Fair Prince's Street wears its most beguiling smiles. One thrills with the joy of being alive in so brave and bonny a world, with the bluebells and heather of old Scotland about him, and this town of song and story at his feet. He gazes at the cheerful crowds moving leisurely along the valley gardens, elegant with statues and flowered lawns, or across at the frowsy heads in rickety garret windows, away up among the palsied gables of ancient High Street, and he knows that over there is the cannon gate of stern tradition, and the storied St. Giles and Black Holy Rood, and beyond them he sees the Salisbury Crags, a gaunt palisade halfway up to lofty Arthur's seat. He has just arrived, perhaps, with the glow on his face of all he has read and heard of this famed place, and the bugles are singing on Castle Hill, and the Edinburgh bells are ringing, there is little opportunity for preliminary impressions while arriving. The train darts up a valley before you have finished with the suburban cottages of the labouring men, and with an ultimate shriek of relief abruptly dives into its cave, as it were and deposits you, 
unceremoniously into the esplanaded Waverley Station, with flowered walks above and a market just at hand. The wise traveller gathers up his luggage and fares eagerly forth to Prince's Street, as a matter of course. There on the way to his hotel, he finds a good part of Edinburgh idling pleasantly after luncheon, for Prince's Street is the dear delight of the loiterer, be he old or young, Robin or Jean. He is studied as he passes through the crowds, curiously, smilingly, critically, tolerantly. His clothing may excite disapproval, his baggage, amusement, and his intentions, speculation. Curiosity takes the air at noon. Arrived in a moment at a prince's street hotel and duly registered, he is handed a curious disc of white cardboard, the size of an after-dinner coffee cup's top upon which is blazoned the number of the room to which he has just been assigned. Preceded by a chambermaid, gowned in black and aproned in white and followed by a porter with his traps, he advances grandly to his quarters, according to the tag, and hurries to a window for his first keen impression of the modern Athens. Just why it should be called an Athens would scarcely be apparent from a Prince's Street hotel window. The literary rights to the title may be conceded, but the stranger will need to view the town from some neighbouring height to appreciate the physical similarity between the two cities and to observe the suggestiveness of the castle and the reminder of the Acropolis in the ruin-crowned summit of Colton Hill. What he does see from his window is sufficiently inspiring. At his feet stretches Prince's Street, which he has heard called the finest avenue in Europe, and along its other side terraces of vivid turf set with shade trees and statues and flowered walks, drop down in graceful steps to the lawns in the bottom of the valley that was once the North Locks Basin and where now, to Edinburgh's chagrin, are the railroad tracks. Across these gardens vaults, a boulevard styled The Mound, and on their farther side is the grey old castle on its precipitous crag with a soft sweep of green braes at its base. On the castle side of the valley, the far-famed high street turns the venerable backs of its tall, tottering weather-blackened rookeries on the frivolity of Prince's Street and scornfully gives its laundry to the breeze in hundreds of heaped and crooked gable windows. Centuries before any of us were born, those fantastic and whimsical family nests were lined up as we see them today, 
one could fancy them a row of colossal prehistoric giraffes with their tails all our way, nibbling imaginary treetops on high street. The stranger will lean out of his window and look down Prince's Street and start, with delight to see that sublimest monument to a literary genius, the lace-like gothic spire to Scott, where, under a springing canopy of arches and aspiring needles, studded with statues of the immortal characters he created, sits the great Sir Walter himself in snowy Carrara, with his favourite hound at his feet, and one's heart warms to this romantic Edinburgh, so beloved of him and of the fiery Burns, the passionate charmers, the gentle Alan Ramsay, and Geoffrey of the brilliant far-darting criticisms. Here in their time, mused Robert Ferguson and David Livingston, and Smollett and Hume and Goldsmith and De Quincey, and Kit North and Carlyle, and but yesterday has added the name of Stevenson, not the least loved of them all. What inspiration this region must have kindled to have given to art such sons as Gordon, Drummond, Naismith, Wilkie, Rayburn and Fayette. Could the roster of old Greyfriars burying ground be called? One would marvel at the number of great names there, memorialised that are familiar and beloved to the remotest, out-of-the-way corners of the earth. And so the new arrival closes his window, more slowly than he raised it and steals reverently down into the street to meet this Edinburgh face to face. You might think to hear Americans talk at home that every other Edinburgh man carries a dirk or a claymore under a tartan and wears a ferocious red beard like the pictures of Rob Roy that people go about in plaid shawls and tam-o'-shanters, and that most society functions end up with a highland fling. One may see at wayside railroad stations, as in our own country, wild, hair-blown lassies with flaming cheeks running in from the hills to have a look at the train, but with some such mild exception, if it is one, the Scots on their native heath are, of course, precisely what we are used to elsewhere. Types apart, the man of the streets of Edinburgh looks entirely familiar, shrewd and combative, rugged and perhaps hard, slouchy and indifferent in the matter of dress, hobnailed and bee-capped. There is something tremendously genuine and wholesome about him. He is merry and brisk and lively, often, but you would not call him ever quite happy, 
at least with that sparkle that dances in the eyes you look into on the Paris boulevards. You could scarcely, for instance, imagine a Scotchman singing a barcarel. Best of all, they are honest and sincere, and one takes to them at once. Here are the lassies and laddies you have long sung about, fresh-faced and debonair. Cheerful fearlessness shines out of their frank blue eyes, and they look to dare all things and be utterly unafraid. The square foreheads of the older men, the austere cheekbones and strong chins, unscroll history to the observer and make him think of savage broils along the border, of fierce Finnish fights throughout the wild highlands, and of the deathless greys of Waterloo. You may defeat a Scotchman, but he will never admit it, and if he is all Scotch, he will not even know it. They are brave, witty, and devoted, and many a person will take issue with Swift for finding their conversation hardly tolerable, and with Lamb for pronouncing their tediousness provoking, and for giving them up in despair of ever learning to like them. The new arrival plunges into Prince's Street, accepts inspection good-naturedly, and soon feels entirely at home. He may even find the day bright and cheerful, in spite of apprehension over the dictum of Stevenson, that this climate is the vilest under heaven. The street is quite unusual, one side a terraced valley, and other a splendid line of shops, clubs and hotels, with happy awnings. A throng of vehicles bustles up and down, motor buses, double-decked trolley cars, taxi cabs, hired Victorias, two-wheeled carts, brewery wagons, station lorries, tourists with drivers in scarlet liveries, private carriages and bicycles, the stream of people on either pavement is of the holiday cheeriness that comes with a luncheon recess, from office and shop, though here and there one may occasionally discover some sour-looking female in bombazine that recalls RLS's Mrs. McRankin, and who appears as ready as she to inquire whether we attend to our religion. The restaurants are plying a brisk trade, contenting their tarrying guests, speeding the parting and hailing the coming. Whole coveys of pretty shop girls with brilliant cheeks, wholesome and vivacious, come chattering and laughing out of tea and luncheon rooms, and flutter back to work with frequent enthusiastic stops before alluring windows. Workmen in tweed caps and clerks in straw hats pass by, to or from their occupations and always with lingering looks towards the prince's street gardens. 
so that one can accurately guess whether they are coming from or going to office by applying the reliable Shakespearean formula. Love goes to love as schoolboys from their books and love from love to school with heavy looks. The air is rhythmic with the up and down slur of this speech of A and Na. Curious faces flash past. Threadbare lawyers argue pompously as they saunter back arm in arm toward Parliament Close. And the ruddy-cheeked girls, by contrast, seem so distracting that a foreigner rages at the sentiment that kissing is out of season when the gorse is out of bloom. Occasionally, even at so early an hour, there is evidence of the passion for drink. Willie Brood a peco mort flashes to mind, and one fancies the unsteady ones are trying to hum. When night comes on, sober men in the streets have reason to frown censorously, and if it be a Saturday night, they may even feel lonesome. A passing regiment is a welcome interruption and a brave spectacle. It is always hailed with shouts and joy. All Edinburgh turns in its bed Sunday mornings at nine to see the Black Watch come out of the castle for church parade at St Giles. Nothing stirs Prince's Street on any weekday like a military display. It is a thrilling moment to a stranger, perhaps when he has his first glimpse of a young Tommy Atkins, and he stops stock still to take in the bright scarlet, Taylor's jacket and the tight trousers, the pillbox perilously cocked over an ear, and the inevitable swagger cane with which he slaps his leg as he braves it along. But what is that to the passing of a company of Highlanders? Along they come, kilts and plaids, sparrens swinging, claymores rattling, and jolly Glengarry bonnets poised rakishly to the falling point. Ten pipers are droning, and three drummers are pounding, and one watches as they pass for the holly sprig, or what not they wear in their bonnets as a badge of the clan. The best show is made by the King's Highlanders from up Balmoral Way, and splendid they are in Royal Stuart Tartan, with the oak leaf and thistle in their bonnets, and each man carrying a locker-bar axe. If there is anything more inspiriting than cheery bagpipe music at such a time, no one to laugh foolishly at it and everyone to love it, and the men stepping proudly and the crowd applauding, I for one do not know it. Keenness of impressions, as we all know, may depend on the most trivial circumstances of time and place. I recall, for example, a sharp and thrilling musical experience in Scotland, 
with the instrument nothing more than the despised and humble mouth organ. Perhaps it was the mood, perhaps the setting, perhaps the unexpectedness of it. There was so little and yet so much. At all the events, I shall not soon forget the sparkle and stir of the British Grenadiers as it ripped the sharp night air of the quiet Melrose to the approach of three English soldiers, one with the mouth organ and the others whistling in time as they marched briskly along. I shall always remember the rhythmic beat of their feet as they swung across the murky, deserted square. The loudness, the thrill, and the lilt of that historic melody, and the flicker of a lamp in a window here and there, and the pleasant sting of the keen night air. There is no better place for a stranger to get his bearings, in Edinburgh, then out of that valley-spanning boulevard they call the Mound. He then has the old town to one side and the new town to the other, and on opposite corners, as if to maintain the balance, the castle and Colton Hill. He also takes note of the several bridges that clamp the town together, as it were, and he may look down into the gardens before him and watch the children playing as far as the promenade-covered Waverley Station, or he may turn and look the other way and see quite as many more, all the way along the pleasant green to the old battle-scarred West Kirk of St Cuthbert's, where de Quincey lies in his quiet grave. Thus he will find himself of a sunny afternoon between the pleasant horns of a most agreeable dilemma. He must choose whether to spend his first hour in the new town or the old. If he remembers what Ruskin said, he will fly from the new. But then he may go there, after all. If he recalls the opinion of the old skipper cited by Stevenson whose most radiant conception of the paradise was the new town of Edinburgh, with the wind the matter of a point free. He must decide whether his present inclination is for latter-day city features, like conventional streets lined with substantial grey stone buildings, looking all very much alike for the fashionables of Charlotte Square and Moray Place and the bankers and brokers of St Andrew Square, or the historic ground of crowded old High Street and the castle of Holyrood. He would find in the new town some old places too, for it is 150 years old, and there are the literary associations of the last century, and the house on Castle Street, where Scott lived more than a quarter century, and wrote the early Waverley novels, and rejoiced along with his mystified friends in the tremendous success of The Great Unknown. He would find it a rapidly modernising city, 
No longer may the children salute the lamplighter on his nightly rounds with leery, leery, light and lamps. But he would find the most interesting things, they're the oldest things. And they all in the antiquarian museum. And what a show. John Knox's pulpit, the banners of the conventers the thumpkins, and that aided confession, and the guillotine maiden, that rewarded it, the pistols Robert Burns used as an exciseman, and the sea chest and coconut cup of Alexander Selkirk, the real Robinson Crusoe, and there too is Bonnie Prince's Charlie's Blue Ribbon, of the garter and the ring Flora MacDonald gave him, when they parted. If historic paraphernalia is alluring, however the scenes of its associations are much more so, and our friend would doubtless hesitate no longer, but turn to the old town and trudge up the steep way to the castle. You take the high road and I'll take the low road, and I'll get to Scotland before ye. And if the song had kept to geography, it would probably have added, And we'll meet at the Bonnie Castle, O old Reiki. Such, at least, has been a Scotch custom for 1300 years, and with every reason, through the long and cruel centuries, it has gathered to its flinty grey bosom memories of every possible phase of national mutation, desperate of glorious, gloomy, or gay. One approaches it with awe. So long has it gripped the summit of that impregnable rock, half a thousand feet sheer of three on its sides, that it has blended into the life and colour of its foundations like a huge chameleon until one could scarcely say where rock leaves off and castle begins. A stern and pitiless object, tolerating only here and there a grassy crevice at its base, and a clinging tree or two. In the great historic mile of High Street, lifting gradually from Holyrood to this rugged elevation, one feels the illusion of an enormous scornful finger extended dramatically westward toward the traditional rival Glasgow. There is no need to see Highland regiments drilling on its broad esplanade or to enter its sally port or penetrate the dungeons in its rocky depths to have confidence that the royal regalia of the honours of Scotland are safe enough here, on the red cushions in their iron cage. One enters, and there settles upon him a feeling of sharing in every grim tradition since the doughty days when good King Robert rang. It is not a visit, it is an initiation. Quite worthy of this savage stronghold is the inspiring outlook from its parapets over hills and rivers and storied glens. One turns impatiently from Monsmeg, 
which may have been a big gun in some past days of little ones, to gaze afar over the cast of Stirling and the trailing silver links of the Forth to where the snow shines in the clefts of Ben Leedy, or out over the Pentland Hills where the sweet singers awaited the judgment. The sportsman will think of the grouse shooting at Loch Earn. The sentimentalist will reflect that when night settles over Aberdenshire, the pipers will strike up their Strathspeys and there will be a Scotch Reels by torchlight. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story, but I also hope that you're feeling a little drowsy. If you are not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. Until next time, good night.